Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who is just about two hours of studio work away from a sausage McMuffin and hash brown. Here is the captain. Yeah, when I go to McDonald's, I like to order lasagna for breakfast. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very happy to be featuring Fog of Hostility by the good people at one of our very favorites in the beer brewing business. This is from the geniuses down at Tactical Brewing Company. Fog of Hostility is an Imperial New England IPA double dry hopped with Citra and Cascade hops, garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. And we want to give a big thank you to our good friend Sarah D in Springboro, Ohio. A big we like your jib goes out to Lynn in Los Angeles. Here's a cheers to Arden in San Antonio and also a cheers to Tammy in Clear Lake Shores. And a big shout out to Kim in Hotlanta. Next up, we have Alice in West Wollongong, Australia. Mm -hmm. Nailed it. And last but certainly not least, we have Juan, our number one fan in Taiwan. So thanks to everybody listening far and near And everyone who contributed to this week's beer fund for that, well, we thank you. Yeah, we thank you, you filthy animals. For everything True Crime, check us out at truecrimegarage.com. And check out our bonus show called Off the Record on Stitcher Premium. And Colonel, that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
Listeners of True Crime Garage come here to give strength to the victims. And nothing breaks your heart more than a child victim and parents of that child. Unfortunately, that is what we have here today. A missing little girl. A case that refuses to go cold due to the efforts of the girl's family, the hard work of law enforcement agencies, both local and federal, and the commitment of a tight-knit community. The missing little one that we are talking about this week is Asia Degree. She vanished on a cold, rainy night 21 years ago. She was just nine years old. But the case has other reasons for not going cold. Because just as strange as Aisha's disappearance are the leads and tips that have come in over the years. We have discussed many missing persons cases here in the garage. One thing we continually see when a child goes missing is that hope can never fade. Because unfortunately, too often, hope is all they have. Aisha's mother does not watch the news as stories of abused children and murdered women haunt her. In 2013, she told then-Charlotte Observer reporter Mandy Locke, quote, God won't let me believe she's dead. In Aisha's case, every few years, there's another solid lead that presents some hope for answers. More importantly, since February 2000, there's been many abduction victims located and brought home. J.C. Dugard was found in 2009 after being held captive for 18 years. Michelle Knight, Gina DeJesus, and Amanda Berry, all three were kidnapped between 2002 and 2004. They were rescued together in 2013. And of course, there's the story of Jamie Kloss, who just two years ago in 2019 was found alive. It's stories like these and the bravery and strength of these women that help to keep hope alive for the parents of the missing and for all of us. But with this glimmer of hope and these rays of positivity, there is still a lot of darkness. There are the nightmares that visit the families mercilessly. For the parents, it's the overwhelming hurt of closing your eyes and imagining your loved one trapped, hungry, and cold. The relatives look at everyone suspiciously, even stopping to examine the faces of children who do not seem to resemble their parents. For these people cannot trust anyone anymore. They know someone took their child. Maybe even someone they know is responsible. Maybe someone they trusted before they lost the ability to do so. Could it be that someone in the beginning of the case who tried to help the family took the little one? It's the reoccurring haunting and nagging fears that naturally creep into the minds of the family. Did someone follow the child home? Was it a neighbor who watched and waited for the perfect time to snatch the child? It's the forever heightened sense of one's surroundings. It's the staring at a driver, trying to memorize the make and model of a suspicious vehicle that for some reason or other squealed its tires. It's your heart jumping every time the phone rings. It's the looking into the eyes of the unknown man at the diner, looking for what? Something. Anything. Some kind of breadcrumb that will lead you to embrace that loved one once again. It's these things that beat you up, tear you down, and can drive you to insanity. Maybe it's one's faith in God 
themselves or something that they simply cannot explain that keeps hope alive. Aisha's mother says she ignores the speculation that her daughter is dead. She believes if that were true, God would, quote, give me a sign and prepare me. The disappearances of children like Aisha Degree are often considered to be lost causes. After 72 hours, the odds of finding a child alive are low. But for the parents, the child are alive, frozen in time, and just out of their reach. Officials at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children point to cases like J.C. Dugard, Jamie Kloss, and of course the unforgettable rescue of the three young ladies in Ohio in 2013, and say these examples should bring a resurgence of energy to old cases. Lena Holmes, a family advocacy specialist at the center, says, We hope these cases can be a reminder that kids are still out there. It reinforces the need for vigilance. If you see something funny or suspicious, reach out. It could mean everything. This is True Crime Garage. This week, we are going to be talking about a truly bizarre case. This is a missing persons case, one that I have seen. Many say that there is reason to believe that the missing little girl may be alive and well. Others are not so hopeful and suspect some kind of foul play or maybe even an accident. We will lay out the facts of this case and offer some thoughts along the way. I suspect the blog at truecrimegarage.com will be rife with theories and speculation for this case here, Captain. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest here, and every week we are talking about someone's real-life tragedy, and I have said this before, I have been able to grow a rather hard and cold soul from looking at so many of these cases for so long, but once in a while I can't explain why, Heck, most times I don't even know why, but once in a while a case really gets to me. Sometimes the victim or victims seem more human, more real, and stand out from the other cases. This is certainly one of those cases for me, but in this case I do know why, and I'll explain that when we get there. Our missing person is Asia Degree. Asia, if she is still out there somewhere, she would be 30 years old. Aisha Jaquil Degree was born on Sunday, August 5th, 1990. By everything I could find, it looks to us that Aisha had a very normal childhood leading up to our day in question. The day in question will be February 14th, 2000. Aisha resided with her family in an apartment on Oakcrest Street, located just south of Falston, which is just a touch north of Shelby, North Carolina. Aisha was born and raised in this area. Aisha's family consists of her mother and father, this is Aquila and Harold, and her brother, who is just about one year older than her, and his name is O'Brien. Shelby is a city in Cleveland County, North Carolina. So if you hear us say Cleveland, we are talking about Cleveland County, North Carolina, not Cleveland in Northeast Ohio. This case has several potentially good leads, but none that lead to our state here in Ohio. 
Shelby is located between Charlotte and Asheville, North Carolina. The population of Shelby back in 2000 was just under under 20,000 people. This is a rural area. Aisha is described as quiet and shy. She was a good student. There were no known issues at school, not with her behavior, attitude, or schoolwork. By all appearances, she had a happy home life. Now, I say by all appearances, she had a happy home life because it is always extremely difficult to understand a family dynamic and what is really going on behind closed doors. If there was stuff going wrong in her house, she wasn't, I think, of the age where she'd be reporting it or telling her friends about it. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure we pointed out that there were no warning flags here in regards to Aisha's family and her home life. Right, no rumors negatively towards the family. Aisha was in the fourth grade at Falston Elementary School. Now, for purposes that will become quite clear very soon, I'm going to point out that Aisha's school, Falston Elementary, is located almost exactly five miles north of her home. Both her street, Oak Crest Street, and the school are almost directly off of Highway 18. Highway 18 is a predominantly two-lane rural highway that travels 145 and a half miles, traveling north-south through the Foothills region, which is the western side of North Carolina. NC18, as I'm going to call it, connects the cities of Shelby, Morganton, Lenore, Wilkesboro, and North Wilkesboro. Most reports say the Degree family lived in an apartment. While they may have been renters, they were living in a double. The address was 3404 Oakcrest Street. Oakcrest Street is one block west of Highway 18. The Degree's residence faces west, and this looks like a ranch-style brick house. There are two front doors because it is a double. There are two driveways, and each of those doubles have a carport. Oakcrest Street looks like it would be a rather quiet street. There's only about 18 houses on Oakcrest when you count up both sides of the street, probably about five or so of them being doubles. There are single-family homes that back up to the houses on Oakcrest Street and Aisha's side of the street so that these are single-family homes along the west side of Highway 18. So if she were to walk out the back of her house, she would cut through someone's yard and then she would be right at Highway 18. Right. These houses and homes on Oakcrest, they are spaced out nicely, so they're not all cramped together. I know this sounds like I'm being overly descriptive here. However, on the night that Aisha first goes missing, all of the evidence says that the child left her home on foot in the middle of the night. So I'm trying to present the lay of the land so we can have a general sense of where she was walking that night. So you heard me right. If you don't know this case, this might be a shock to you, but we're talking about a nine-year-old little girl leaving the house on her own in the middle of the night. And her reasons for leaving are not clear. In fact, that's really just an extension of the mystery of her vanishing. It's very similar some other missing person cases. I mean, obviously, the victim here is way younger. But if you can solve why she left, maybe you could solve what happened to her. 
Yes, and in this case, probably more importantly so than in most. Now, we're going to kick things off with Friday, February 11th, 2000. On this day, there was no school. And from my understanding, it was a teacher work day with no school for the students. So both Aisha's parents are working full-time jobs at this time. Aquila worked at Kawaya American Manufacturing in nearby Lincolnton. Uh, she worked the first shift. Harold worked the second shift as a dock loader for PPG Industries in Shelby, North Carolina. So no school means Asia and O'Brien being just nine and 10 years old will need to go somewhere while mom and dad are at work. So they spent that day at their aunt Keisha's house, just down the street from their own house. Right. I'm assuming this might be Harold's brother's wife because it sounds like Harold's mother and his brother and his brother's family all lived in that same neighborhood, maybe even on the same street as Aisha's family. Later that Friday, Aisha attends basketball practice. She was the star point guard for her school's Little Bulldogs girls basketball team. Next, we have Saturday, February 12th. The kids' basketball games were on Saturdays. It looks like the degrees, like most families, had a fairly regimented routine. You know, school and practices during the week, basketball games on Saturdays, and church on Sundays. So on this typical Saturday, both Asia and O'Brien had basketball games at Burns Middle School. Aisha's team was undefeated going into this game, but on this day, her team struggled. Aisha fouled out late in the game, and the team received their first loss of the season. Aisha was very upset about the loss to the point of crying at this event. Well, just to be clear, this was 2000. So at that point, they're keeping score. They're keeping stats of the players. I know that doesn't happen normally now in elementary school sports, but it happened in 2000. Many people over the last 20 or so years have pointed to this as a possible reason that Asia would sneak out or run away. And I cannot express how absolutely silly I think that that thought would be as if this one basketball loss was the end of the world. Right. So yes, it is confirmed that Asia was upset to the point that she cried either during or after the game, but we should point out that a lot of her teammates did the same thing. They cried as well. Some of them even went to the point of maybe faking an injury to have something to blame the loss on. Right. Regardless, what we have from her parents and from everybody else's account of this incident leading up to her disappearance is that Asia snapped out of this pretty quickly. I mean, anybody with eight, nine, 10 year old kids know that their, their mood swings are, are fast and furious. Yeah. Your kid loses a basketball game and you go, Hey, do you want to get some ice cream? The problem's over. It's done with. Yes. Now we're on to ice cream. Yeah, so she gets over it fairly quickly, and she attends her brother's basketball game. I know that her mom was present. I'm assuming Harold, her father, was present for the entirety of this day, but I can't say for sure. So we know she bounced back pretty quickly. She's watching her brother play his basketball game. Then that night, Aisha went to a sleepover party at her 15-year-old cousin's house, 
This was a fairly large slumber party from what I could find. One report says that Aisha and about a dozen of her friends or her cousins were at this slumber party at the cousin's home that night. It's reported that they stayed up rather late, as one could imagine young girls doing. A whole big gaggle of young girls up being loud. They stayed up late watching TV and dancing. Anybody that has a small child that goes over to a sleepover knows the next day they're going to be dog tired. On Sunday, February 13th, Harold, Aquila, and O'Brien picked up Asia after early in the morning to go to church. So when we say church, Harold, Asia's father, says Asia attended Bible studies classes every Sunday. Sometimes churches will have Bible study classes for the kids while adults are attending church um, services. Yeah, yeah, church services. Uh, I can't say that that was the situation here, but that's what has been reported. The Degrees Church was the Macedonia Baptist Church in Waco, North Carolina. After church, the Degree family of four went to their cousin Shalanda Brown's home. So a family get-together of sorts after church. At the get-together, Aisha's grandmother handed out some Valentine's Day gifts to the grandchildren. Aisha received a bottle of perfume and, of course, Valentine's Day candy. Now, from here, they're going to go home. Aisha was up most of the night, like the captain was pointing out, having fun at the sleepover party. So she is very tired from the night before. She falls asleep very early, and this is right around 6.30 p.m. But there's a storm of brewing. A thunderstorm started in the 8 p.m. hour. This was a loud thunderstorm with thunder and lightning, which woke Aisha up. So she went and watched some TV with her family in the living room. There are a few questionable items. Some reports say that Harold worked that evening. However, I really think that this is just confusion. Right. I don't think he worked that night, nor do I think Sunday was even a normal work night for him. Again, sounds like they're pretty regimented in their routine. Kids go to school. Mom and dad work during the week. You might have practices in the evening for for both the kids playing basketball. Saturdays is devoted to the basketball games. Sundays devoted to church and routine family get-togethers. Could could have been in position though that he got called in. Well, I actually think this is just one of those bad telephone game type items. I agree. Where it's where it's it's certainly a possibility. But I think it's kind of sprung up over the years, and some places it's worked its way into becoming fact. When anytime I have a report of Harold or Aquila giving an account of that Sunday, neither of them ever mention him going to work. Right. So we can get into that a little bit more while that probably came up. But sometime before 9 p.m., the power went out at the degree home. So during the storm, someone crashed into a utility pole, this knocking out power to some of the neighborhoods in that area. This next part, Captain, is a big gray area, even more so than if Harold worked or not that night. So it is stated that Harold stepped out for a last-minute trip to buy some Valentine's Day candy or a shopping trip of some sorts. 
Some reports say that he went out at 10 or so and got back at 11.30 p.m. Other reports state that he didn't go out until 11.30 p.m. Now, to be perfectly clear, Mm -hmm. I could not find anywhere that Harold is saying he went out or his wife says that he went out. So we should say that he may not have gone out at all. It's it's part of the the weirdness of the story. But let's say that Harold did go out for a last minute late night shopping trip. Again, let's remind everybody it's two thousand. Things weren't like for today. You have grocery stores that are open twenty four hours a day. That wasn't as common back in two thousand. On top of that, they live in a pretty rural community. You would think that place to get candy wouldn't be open at 1130. Possibly. I mean, I would expect there to be CVS, Walgreens, regular grocery stores. They're not terribly far from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a huge city. But let's let's pretend that, in fact, he did go out. Which... Right. But all, all I'm stating is that in 2000, things shut down earlier. Heck, in my town now, you go out at midnight and there's there's cars everywhere and there's people shopping and and getting fast food. But in 2000, most of the fast food places closed around 10 o'clock. So if he went out, many think that this is awfully suspicious. You know, people want to know, they question why would he go out so late? Why would he go out in a bad thunderstorm for some last minute Valentine's shopping? So I think we should offer up a couple of thoughts here. One, I don't find this to be a red flag at all. So Harold works second shift. So he gets off work much later than most people, goes to bed much later than most. So while the time might be late for some of us, to him, it is not. He routinely is up late. Now, why go out in a storm? My guess is that there, if he did go out, there must have been some urgency to something he intended to pick up while he's out on the shopping trip. And some items I could think of, maybe he needed to get Valentine's for the kids to pass out at school the next day, you know, so the next day is Valentine's day. Some schools do a little exchanging of cards or treats or whatever amongst the children. But isn't February 14th, his anniversary with his wife? Well, that's the other thing. And I think that kind of gets, gets lost in the shuffle a little bit here, right? So that's a little more important than your kids taking valentines to school yes so that day the next day would be his and his wife's 12th wedding anniversary right and the report that i saw said that the two plan to spend the day home alone so they had the day off from work my thought is captain maybe he needed some anniversary gifts for the wife right so that's not something you're going to put off, especially if you're already planning to spend the day together. Now, if he went out, the, the report is that he returned at some point, maybe as late as midnight-ish, uh, and then fell asleep on the couch when he got back. Again, he may have gone out, he may not. I don't actually think that's important. One, I don't find it to be suspicious if he did. And again, I also suspect that maybe he didn't go out at all is what really went on. Regardless, what we do know is that the power at their home kicked back on around 1230 a.m. So by this point, Captain, we know that everyone is at home. The kids and Aquila are in their beds. 
It is said that Harold checked on the kids around this time at 12.30 a.m. Then, for about the next two hours, he's watching TV, sitting on the couch in the living room. He says at 2.30 a.m., he shuts off the TV and checks on the kids again a second time. And at this time, he finds Aisha and O'Brien sleeping peacefully in their beds. He went to join Aquila in their bedroom and falls asleep relatively quickly. He checked on the kids twice. And again, this is another thing that people note that they find to be strange or suspicious. Again, I don't see anything weird about this at all. You know, people, people say, well, I don't check on my kids more than once. I think I I can relate this to my own world here. When I had a, a younger daughter, my home was relatively small. And I can say that just out of natural habit, Anytime I happened to be near the bedroom at night, I would just, I just look in real quick, double check that, that she's sleeping. Their home was not very big. It's a double. It's, it's actually fairly small. It's a two bedroom. Him and his wife are in the master and the two kids share the other bedroom. It's very likely I've not seen the layout, but I know from my old house that was rather small. If I just, if I'm going to bed that my bedroom door is right next to the other ones, you just peek in real quick. And I think that that's probably what happened here, that it's a small dwelling and he's just peeking in on his kids to make sure that they're okay. So as we said, Captain Asia shared a room with her older brother sometime during the night, O'Brien says he wakes up and he hears his sister Asia moving about in her bed. He thought she was tossing and turning in her sleep. He did say that he then heard her at some point get up, and he thought that she was going to the restroom. Now, reports differ on this next item, and that would be if he ever heard her return. Some say that he heard her return into the room. Others say that she did not. Yeah, I'm not too clear on this, but the the brother states that he saw her out of bed, but doesn't the father state that as well? No. So the, the reports that I have. Just the brother. And well, and to take it a step further, the reports I have say that the brother didn't see her. He hears her. Right. And he, he just kind of made of assumptions. I mean, they've shared a room for years, so it's probably not uncommon that she would get up and use the restroom in the middle of the night or toss and turn and, and wake him up at some point. I would like to know what the parents could see when they're laying in their bed, what can they see into the hallway? And would they be able to see somebody if somebody came into the house to take their little baby girl away? Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. 
Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem. 
and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Colonel. Cheers, Captain. So this home is a one-story, small, ranch-style house. My guess here is that they probably could see pretty much most of the doors, bedrooms, typically are across the hallway from one another. So my guess would be if their door was open and if they were awake, they could see something. However, both of the parents slept through the night. We have O'Brien saying that he hears his sister at some point in the night, maybe even heard her leave the room. Whether she came back or not is still up in the air. But it's believed that this would have been around 3 a.m. or maybe a little later. Now, O'Brien says he hears these noises that he thinks is his sister tossing and turning and then leaving the room to go to the restroom. However, we will quickly learn that the noises he is hearing is very likely Asia getting up, getting dressed, and maybe even packing up some last-minute things that night in the early morning hours. She got up at some point, packed her book bag with two of her favorite outfits, her basketball uniform and a Tweety Bird purse, and then apparently she slipped out of her house into the dark in the rain. I don't want to nitpick on details, but we have no proof that she packed her bag up. Because on the 11th, you you stated she spent time with her aunt because of no school, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the 12th, she goes to the slumber party. I'm guessing that she took her book bag with her basketball outfit in it. Because that would be the day that she had a basketball game, right? Mm-hmm. So at some point they they go to the slumber party, and maybe that's when she changed out of her basketball uniform, keeping her basketball uniform and her book bag, and then now they're back at their house on the thirteenth. I'm just saying we have no proof that she she packed anything up. Everything that she took with her could have been in her bag because of the slumber. Correct. That's uh, quite the possibility. So we do know that she is last seen inside her home at approximately 2.30 a.m. on February 14, 2000. But this is coming from a 10-year-old. What's coming from a 10-year-old? The last time she's seen in her house. No, this is coming from Aisha's father, Harold, when he says he went to sleep at that time and said that he checked on, on his daughter and son and saw them both sleeping in their beds. So the father was the last one to actually see her, but then the, these rumblings that her brother is talking about, we're assuming is maybe a half an hour to an hour later. Yeah, and I I don't know that he is providing a time 
frame for when he thinks he's hearing this. My guess is, I mean, he's 10. He's probably saying I'm hearing this in the middle of the night. But there's other things that are going to happen in our timeline, which will allow us to place that event somewhere in that general time frame. Right. So on Monday, February 14th, Aquila got up, and this is when she notices that Aisha is gone. Now, the family says that all of the doors and windows were locked when they got up. And Aisha and O'Brien rode the bus to and from school each day. They would walk from their home over to Highway 18 or to the bus stop near Highway 18, get on the bus there. So the kids each day, when they would return home from school, mom and dad were both at work at this time. Right. So both the kids... They each had a key to the house. Aisha kept hers in her book bag. So we're guessing here that she got up and left the house and likely using the key, her key, she locked the door behind her. Right. Again, there's no sign that anybody came into the house. The doors are all locked. They couldn't determine if she went out the front door or the back door. Regardless, the family calls 911. This call comes in at 6.38 a.m. The first police officer on the scene was there in just minutes. It's logged that he was there at 6.40 a.m. At 6.42, Sheriff Dan Crawford arrives. He immediately calls for a canine unit to get out to the scene. Now, newspaper reporters and television crews were actually out in front of the degree house fairly early that morning. By 2 p.m., agents from the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, SBI for short, arrived at the Degree home, and they immediately taped off this whole area. It's, it's now a crime scene. By the end of the day, searchers had covered a three-mile-wide area, finding nothing. And now, 21 years later, Asia still has not come home. Now, so you can see things start moving very quickly once 911 is called. It's just two minutes before an officer arrives at the home. Then the, the boss, the sheriff in charge, is there two minutes later. Canine unit on the scene. Reporters there interviewing people. It's smart work right away. The boss shows up, doesn't hesitate to go, hey, bring in a canine. Let's try to track her scent. She's a nine-year-old. She couldn't have gone that far. No, she's left on foot. There's some interesting little things, though, along the way. that. So one, the, the call came in from Harold. Harold was the one that placed the 911 call. And it's my understanding that he makes this call, either his wife instructs him to call 911. This is, would be after she's called some relatives. You know, that's that's never anyone's first thought. And, and I mean, we all live these routine lives and such. And so of course you don't, <laughs> you, you don't immediately jump off the cliff. You just kind of inch your way to it. So she called relatives. Remember we have relatives that live in the same neighborhood. She called relatives to say, Hey, my, I wake, woke up and Asia's gone. Is she at your house for some reason? Right. Getting no answers. And, and that's when Harold calls. One thing that I found strange on the there there's a 911 transcript that was available in one of the newspapers at the time and he says that one of the neighbors said that they spotted or thought they saw Asia 
walking out that night, which they never, there's never really any clarification on who the neighbor was. You know what I mean? Like what I mean is we know that they have family living in the immediate area. Was the neighbor a family member of, of the degrees? Yeah, I think that's a good point, but some people also think this is possibly the parents setting something up to say, Hey, look, somebody else saw her, but we're not going to tell you which neighbor that that was. Well, I, I hope that police would have followed up on that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. something he stated on the 911 call and they should have, we know they're canvassing the area, mm-hmm. um, going door to door that that would be normal police protocol. So if that got missed, then somebody, somebody severely dropped the ball. I'm just pointing out, I don't know. There's no necessary reason for that information to make its way to the newspapers. I'm just pointing out that that was something that was said on the 911 call. That's not a well-known piece of information in this case. You also said that uh, Asia left by foot, but at this point, law enforcement nor her parents really have any idea if she did or not. Other than there's no sign of breaking and entering. There's no sign of, you know, that she struggled with anybody. The the door was locked. So everything leads us to believe that she left for whatever reason, locked the door and headed somewhere. That's correct. And just to point out how fast everything's kind of moving and really there's, there's just a really a lot of chaos going on around the degree family immediately with the discovery that their daughter is missing. So we even have Aisha's father, Harold, he does a telephone interview with the Charlotte observer. He says in this, you know, because some people have wanted to know, well, was this an issue? Did it had, Asia gone missing before or left the house before. And in this interview on that same day, he says to the Charlotte observer, Asia had never run away before and that there were no family problems that would make his daughter want to leave. Now that newspaper gives a description of Asia listing her at four foot, six inches tall, weighing 65 pounds. She's African American and wears her hair and pigtails. Her parents say that they found all the doors in the house locked, and according to sheriff's deputies, there was no sign of forced entry into the home. And then here's here's a really troubling piece of information in this same article. It says, unfortunately, search dogs did not pick up Aisha's scent at anywhere, which is really bizarre. They didn't pick up her scent even near the home. Now, we do know that it was cold and raining and there was a big thunderstorm that night and it was still raining when she is believed to have left the house. Everything I've ever read about scent dogs is that the rain is not a deterrent for the scent dogs. In fact, in a lot of cases, it's it's actually helpful to because it makes I don't want to I don't know the science of it, but that's what I've always been. Well, it's very science. But the deterrent here is is the wind. Yes, that, that could be the situation. From what I've read, the rain can help the scent dogs, but once you mix in the rain with the wind, it becomes a very big issue for the scent dogs. And they sometimes, again, in this case, we know that they weren't able to pick up on her scent. What we do have to go off of, even though the dogs couldn't find anything, is we do have a couple of eyewitnesses that come forward. So 
Two truck drivers reported seeing Asia walking south on Highway 18 north of Shelby between 3.30 and 4.15 a.m. That's how we can kind of come to the idea that he must have, O'Brien must have heard her moving or leaving around 3 o'clock. Right. Asia was apparently near the intersection of Highway 180 at that time. So this would be the intersection of Highway 18 and Highway 180. This is about a mile south of her home. Is this heading in the direction of her school? No, it's the opposite direction. So her school is about five miles north. That's why I wanted to point out where everything is here, because she's she's only nine years old. You're not going to have a great sense of direction or or any of that mess at nine years old. But if you're used to waking up every day, going out to your bus stop, riding the bus five miles north to your school, you're going to have some you're going to know that the lay of that land. She's walking in the opposite direction. So she's about one mile south of her home. It's thought that this is the last confirmed sighting of the child. Now, one thing that's always been stated was that when when these first sightings take place, neither of these truckers call 911 or call the police. And Which some people- is ridiculous. Well, I'd, actually, I don't think so. I've, I've heard it stated like, I wish it would have been a normal person that would have seen her because they would have called the police. And Mm. and, and I think you have to go to the core of the, of the story and the eyewitness accounts to understand possibly why nobody thought to alert the authorities. First off, they're big dummies. Wouldn't you have a very different reaction to seeing a nine year old walking in the dark along the highway than if you saw an adult walking alongside the road in the middle of the night. Right. So the way that these stories work is Roy Blanton Sr. and his son, Roy Blanton Jr., they're on a trucking run from Shelby to Falston. So they're traveling north on NC-18. They said this is right around 4 a.m. They were driving northbound on NC-18. They spotted a small figure wearing a light-colored clothing walking southbound on the road so they're only going to see this person very briefly she's walking in the opposite direction they're on a highway heading north they say that they thought it was a woman so roy senior used the cb radio radio to alert other truckers to keep an eye out that there's a pedestrian there's a woman walking alongside the road he he calls this in on his cb to warn the other truckers because It's dark out. It's raining. He's worried that this person might get hit. When he radios it out, remember, he tells the newspaper, I thought it was a woman. He may have said that on the CB. Right. So our next witness is Jeff Rupp. He's a trucker for the Sundrop Bottling Company driving his regular route. He said that he saw a young girl walking southbound on NC-18. Now, that's his words, young girl. Now, again, he may have heard woman over the CB. I don't know. He says this again is around 4 a.m. It's cold and pouring rain at this time. Both sightings were on NC-18 near that intersection that we talked about, the, the Highway 180. The fact that two men called into police independently of each other. So 
both of these witnesses are not aware that somebody else is phoning in basically the same tip. Phoner. Law enforcement and FBI says this makes both of these statements extremely credible. So neither of these witnesses call anything in when they spot neither the girl walking along the road. Right. They call it in later. And the way that this works is Jeff, he's on his lunch break having lunch somewhere later that same day. And remember we said the news reporters were already out front of the degrees home. He sees it on the news that there's a missing girl. So he calls police and says, look, this is what I saw at 4 a.m. this morning. In fact, I rolled down my window and tried to get the person's attention to, I don't know if he was going to offer him some help or a ride or whatever. He says that when he tried to get their attention, the person he saw ran into uh, a field, almost like they were running from him. So he sees this news report on his lunch break. He calls in and tells this information to the sheriff's department. The other man, Roy Blanton Sr., who was traveling with his son, they were driving a long distance. I believe they were all the way up in Chicago when they finished their route that day. He had no idea that anybody was missing. Again, he said he thought he saw a woman on that brief passage on NC-18. Mm-hmm. He happens to be on the phone with his wife later that day, once they're in their hotel, and she tells him, hey, there's, uh, there's a little girl that's missing from, you know, from our area. And he says, I think that might be, could be the person that I saw this morning. So he phones it in at that time. So, I mean, three eyewitnesses. Correct. Three yeah. eyewitnesses. And this is... This all goes to backing up the idea that she left on her own for whatever reason, whether she packed up that night or or packed planning for some kind of trip, or just, as you said, maybe grabbed a backpack that was already packed with some things from the slumber party before there's nobody else seen with her. She's not seen fleeing anything. This all points to the idea that she got up and left on her own for some reason weird reason in the middle of the night right the next day on february 15th this is after 12 hours of searching cleveland county sheriff's office chief deputy bob roadcap announced quote right now we don't have anything and everyone is a suspect yeah i get that idea but when you have eyewitnesses seeing this girl a ways from her house and once those 911 calls come in from the parents We know the parents' whereabouts. So if we have evidence that she's still alive, then, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't question or interrogate the the parents. I'm just saying they should be more on your radar to vet out than to try to point the finger towards. Well, and to add to the confusion, but this is also another good lead here, some of Aisha's belongings would be found uh, within a couple of days of her going missing. Yeah. And this is another one of those things in this story, Captain, where I, I, I can't help it, but time and time again, her disappearance is such a freaking mystery. Very confusing. That I think that you do question everything. I think you question the family. I think you question what Aisha was doing. I think you question 
why these truckers didn't immediately call police. Does pineapple go on pizza? And when you get to the core of the story, you really start to understand the the simple facts of it and and can apply those and go, okay, I get it that the trucker didn't call police. He he thought he was seeing an adult walking along this. If I called the police every time I saw an adult walking alongside the road at night, I mean, what kind of life would I have? <laughs> so, um, but this is one of those bizarre things that, that the way that it's reported, again, makes people question some people that are fairly close to the case. And this would be the Turners. So there's a old married couple named the Turners that they live in the area where Asia was last seen by these two truckers. Mm-hmm. Okay. They, when they were notified that Asia was missing and a lot of people within, you know, miles of her home were told, Hey, could you, could you check your properties to see if you find anything? Because in these types of situations, it's very possible that a child or any missing person could simply have just gotten injured somewhere and then they're unable to go and get help that they're just lying there somewhere waiting for someone to find them. And so that's, you ask people to check their properties for that reason, amongst other reasons. In Aisha's case, they did just that. And the Turners, Tina and Ike. the wife, she says that she found some items in what is best, I would best describe it as an old tool shed on their property. It's I've seen it described as a, a chicken house, as a shack. I don't know how that came about because... She describes it as an old tool shed, but she says that she found um, some items that appear that they would have belonged to possibly a little girl, along with a small wallet sized photo of a little girl. Now, the way that this has been reported 20 years later is that the Turners found these items and they failed to tell police about them. That's actually not true at all. The truth is that they handed over this little picture, the wallet-sized photo of a little girl that they found. The other items, they kept them. And they handed the photo over to the sheriff's department because they don't know what Asia looks like. They thought maybe the picture could be of Asia or one of her friends. So armed with this photograph, the sheriff's department quickly speak with the degree family and Nobody knows who this picture is of, who, you know, who's the little girl in the picture. They don't know. And why would Asia have this possibly have this in her belongings? They wanted to know, did it have anything to do with Asia's case at all? Then it inspired the song by Nickelback. Look at this photograph. When we sift through this stuff, we do need to point out for the Turners that in fact, they gave this picture to the authorities almost immediately. So the way that this works, and we're going to dive in here real quick. It's Charles and Debbie Turner. They're the owners of Turner Upholstery Company, which was located on NC-18, a little more than a mile from Aisha's home. This is south of her home, so in the direction that she was walking. Debbie Turner and her daughter found a hair ribbon, a marker, and a pencil. And a bleistift. And that picture... These were found in a tool shed that is off of, on their property off of NC-18. And the reports state that this tool shed was located anywhere between 300 feet and 600 feet from the highway. So reports 
vary on the, the exact location. The interesting thing here, though, the way that this goes down is now they got this photograph. They show it to police. Police go, yeah, we don't know what this is. Mm-hmm. Aisha's family, no, we don't know what this is. They kind of dismiss it immediately going, well, this is probably just garbage. You know, it's probably just some random picture that has nothing to do with with our case, with Aisha's case. Right. Again, we, I, I'd like to know when the trash was put out that week. And because, like we said, we, we have a storm that night. We got winds blowing. You could find items next to each other. doesn't mean that they're actually coming from the same individual. That's true. I mean, this is either a football field or two football fields off of the highway. Right. Um, that's not going to be the issue with the picture for me. What's your issue? Well, we're going to get into that. I want to go through the this this portion of the story. Is it my Nickelback impersonation? So what happens here, Captain? We have both of those eyewitnesses, the truck drivers. The sheriff's department says, okay, we need both of you guys to come back and meet us at Highway 18. We want you to point and show us where you believe you saw Asia when you were driving that night. That, because, I mean, this is a stretch of highway that we said is over 100 miles long. Right. So let's narrow it down here. We got people out searching for this girl. They really think that they can still find her at this time, and they have a huge search party, and they're going to major efforts to try to find her. So very quickly, within... This would be about, I would say, maybe 36 hours of her going missing, maybe 48 at the most. Both truck drivers are on location with the sheriff in charge, and they're pointing to, this is where I saw the girl, and this is what I saw her doing. Right. So using that information, they're now expanding their search, because at first their search was really centered on her home in a three-mile radius around that. Now we're moving down about a mile and a half, half south of where her home would be on NC 18. And we can really start searching here now. So they start searching there and they find candy wrappers near where the trucker said that they saw Asia, right? They take these candy wrappers and they show them to family and friends of Asia's and people point out, they said that those wrappers are the same brand and type of candy that we received at school. I don't know if it was after the basketball game or before the break, but they received some candy uh, and they, they're confirming this is stuff that she would have had right. in her possession. So now they're like, okay, this is a, this really is one of those weird cases where there's an actual breadcrumb trail. You know, here it's candy wrappers. So now they're going, wait a second, that photograph that we have, even though we don't know who's in it, or if it has any connection to Asia at all, this photograph is found near the candy wrappers. Right. So now it's starting to look like it is connected to Asia's disappearance somehow. That's when police go back to the Turners and they, they're questioning them about this photograph. And the Turners are saying, by the way, we found other stuff with the photograph too. But again, we didn't know if it was just debris, trash or what. So we never turned it in. So that's when they show them, hey, we found this green marker in the shed. We found a yellow hair bow with um, a lot of times this is reported as a Mickey Mouse hair bow, but it was a it was a yellow one. And you probably can envision what I'm talking about here. It was a yellow plastic hair bow that had a 
plastic bear on it, but it was all one solid color, which was yellow. The uh, And then they found a pencil. Now, this pencil is interesting because it was a 1996 a- Atlanta Olympics pencil. That's the year of the Olympic bombings. Which Aisha's family, with her, her parents, immediately say, yes, she had a pencil just like that one. So this is all starting to look like these things are all involved in her case. You know, the green marker, who knows who that belongs to. It probably was Aisha's, but they can go, yeah, that yellow hair bow, that was hers. That 1996 Atlanta Olympics pencil, that was hers. The candy wrappers, yes, she had candy in her possession that was like that, that was of that type. And, oh, we have this wallet-sized photo of a little girl that probably came from her. There was no reason, you know, the Turners say there's no reason for any of this stuff to be in our tool shed. So to find any of it and find it all together must mean that it's all came from the same source. On February 20th, Captain, this would be after basically a week of searching for Asia. This is when authorities finally decide to suspend their ground search for her. So very early on, they have a lot of people looking. They're pulling out all of their resources to try to find this little girl. The best they could do is track her movements somehow from her house down to this space that's about a a mile and a half south of her home. They find those items that everyone agrees belong to her. And after that, there's really no, no trace of her. Uh, in the next several days while they're they're searching all over the place. And a thing that you pointed out, which I think is good and everybody's probably noting in their heads that she's nine years old and her sense of direction would be not so great. And then you have, she's on the main road. That main road would take her into town. It would take her to her school, but she's heading in the opposite direction. And it doesn't seem like we have even uh, the slightest clue to say uh, we, we we know that family members live close to her, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't have anybody saying, hey, well, maybe she was trying to walk a mile to, to her grandmother's house or her cousin's house or whatever. What I can say off of what I know that uh, regarding the location of her other family, their, the location of their homes she was well past their houses too. Right. So she, she had, she had walked past that there again is a big part of this mystery. She's one, she's nine and she's out in the middle of the night, which makes zero sense to anybody. Mm -hmm. You and I've seen a lot of stuff and covered a lot of weird stuff here in the garage. And this is out of bounds from, from any of that stuff. She walks past all these family members homes. She's not heading toward her school I've heard some people say, oh, she was sleepwalking. I call bullshit on that. That seems bizarre, bizarro thinking to me. It's, it's, I don't think it's bizarre. I think it's, it's, it is a possibility. I think the percentage is pretty small because she reacts to the truck driver. Yeah, but that, right. But you can be sleepwalking and reacting to it. No, I understand. I'm just, when, when I put together the totality of all of the evidence, Mm -hmm. it, it seems, it seems like a highly, highly unlikely scenario that she grabbed her book bag, mm-hmm. trekked a, a mile and a half through the cold and rain, never woke up, reacts to a, a truck driver, ha- and, and runs off in the opposite direction, and is sitting there eating candy 
at some point. It just it doesn't it doesn't track for me. Right. As far as sleepwalking goes, it normally affects males more than it does females. But this is something that most kids will grow out of by their teenage years. So she's nine. So that puts her at a great age to be a candidate for sleepwalking. Also, it's normally happens after after the individual has some kind of sleep deprivation. So we know that she was at a slumber party the night before. Was she so sleep deprived that that caused her to sleepwalk that night? When people are sleepwalking, they could do many tasks. I mean, walking a couple miles wouldn't be that crazy. Driving a car, people are known to drive a car sometimes. People have even murdered people in their sleep and got off as sleepwalking as their defense. Right. I Again, I mean, she gets up, puts her shoes on, grabs a book bag, manages not to get run over on the highway. I I find it again. Is, is it is it impossible that she was sleepwalking? No. Is well, it very I think, well. I think you're being a little dismissive of the idea. No, no. Anyway, let's move on because uh, too many people have spent too much time on that already. On February twentieth, this is when they stopped the ground search. At that point, Captain, it was estimated that the sheriff's department and all parties involved. Remember, they're using a lot of different resources here. That they, that they expended approximately 9,000 professional searcher hours during that time looking for the little girl. So you think that if there was any other trace of her out there other than those items being found in that tool shed or these eyewitnesses, that they would have come across that during that very first week. They were not just sitting on their hands waiting to get a call or for something to happen. They were out actively looking for this girl like gangbusters for that whole week on February 21st. This is a brilliant move here. And this is something that, um, I, I don't know that, a look, a, a lesser sheriff's department might not think to do this. So I applaud this effort here. I think it's something that's very, it shows a level of intelligence out of this sheriff's office. Not that I had any questions, but on February 21st, the sheriff's officials, they set up roadblocks along Highway 18. This would have been for a block of hours. I think it was about four hours that they set up these roadblocks. They did this during the time frame of when she would have been missing. You know, So you set it up about 2 in the morning to maybe 6 in the morning or 3 in the morning to maybe 7 in the morning. Right. And what they're doing is they're stopping every vehicle that that is driving that area, driving that stretch of road, and they're interviewing each driver because first they want to know, okay, you you are here on a Monday, early morning hours. Is this a typical drive for you on a Monday? Oh, it is? Okay, did you happen to see something last Monday on your way to wherever you're going? Did you see a little girl? She's missing. Did you see uh, you know her get into a vehicle? Did you see anything suspicious? So this is a really smart way of gathering some more information because you may be stopping and interviewing people that are not from the area that travel that area for routinely for whatever reason, but were unaware that they had some information or maybe you happen to stumble upon some information by stopping these people on Thursday, February 24th. 
The Charlotte Observer newspaper runs an article containing the mystery photo. That's what I'm going to call it. The mystery photo that was found in the shed along with Aisha's belongings. The article is titled, Do You Know This Girl? And it runs, this is weird. It runs at the bottom of the page uh, of page 75, which would be page one of the Gaston section of the Thursday's newspaper. Again, that's page 75 of 108 pages of newspaper. And I'll read the article real quick here for you, Captain. Well, it's prime spot. Do you know who this girl is? And then it shows the picture, the wallet-sized photo that was found in that tool shed with Aisha's belongings. And it says, Cleveland County authorities are trying to determine whether this photo is connected with the case of nine-year-old Aisha Degree, missing from her home near Shelby since February 14th. The picture turned up in the same shed off of NC-18 where items identified as Aisha's were found. Aisha's family did not recognize the girl in the photo and neither do, sorry, and neither did officials at Aisha's school. Anyone with information about the photo should call the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office. We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or theories on this case, please go to truecrimegarage.com and leave a comment on the blog. And while you're there, check out our store page. We will see you back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.